Today we're returning to a topic that we are particularly fascinated by, which is the financing of Native American tribes. And we've done two episodes about this maybe a year or so ago or a year or so plus, both of which did nothing but tell us that we knew so little. Fortunately, a number of our students and other listeners didn't object to our lack of knowledge and instead wanted us to do more. So today we have found someone who is perhaps the very best in the business, at least that is what everybody we have talked to on the legal side has told us. And he has kindly agreed to educate us in the ways of Native American financing. And this is our friend, Townsend Hyatt, who is a partner at Oric in lovely Portland. And Townsend, to my understanding, is one of the few people at a major law firm who has been able to focus almost exclusively on Native American financing. And I want to begin uh, first by welcoming him, but also asking him if he might give us a little bit of background on how he got into this fascinating field and how he was able to make it into a full-time practice, uh, because uh, there are a number of our students who I have told, look, uh, Native American financing is very interesting. It's important because the tribes need money to be able to grow, uh, but it's a very niche practice that you probably won't be able to go into. And Townsend proves uh, that wrong. So welcome to our podcast. And if you don't mind beginning with telling us a little bit about how is it that you got to do this? Well, thanks, me too. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for that. Um very kind and probably much too generous introduction. So I guess I moved into the tribal finance specialty kind of laterally. Many years ago, uh, I was a municipal bond lawyer and I worked with states and local governments uh, on bond financings for all kinds of capital improvements. Uh, everything's from schools, roads, sewer and water, systems, housing, airports, et cetera. And uh, at the time I was a young associate, this is the early 1990s. Um, and the partner that I did most of my work for uh, is named Doug Go. And Doug had um, done some BIA, that is Bureau of Indian Affairs guaranteed loans, which is a type of tribal fi uh, financing. And Doug had been hired um, for several financings, um, mostly by tribes here in Oregon, and to do things like sawmills, health clinics, early childhood centers um, on the reservations here in Oregon. And anyway, Doug and I still work together. 
Uh, so I, I sort of credit him with introducing me to tribal finance. And I guess when I started doing this again in the early 90s, I don't think you could say tribal finance was really a field or even a subspecialty within a field. The early projects that we worked on were purely governmental. Uh, they were tax exempt. Um, so that's how a municipal bond lawyer kind of uh, naturally stepped in and provided at least the tax expertise. But gradually, you know, word began to get around among tribal governments uh, about the, the benefits and the uses of tax exempt financing. And I think that awareness happened to coincide with another major development in the mid 1990s which was the rise of Indian gaming around the country, which uh, sort of propelled economic self-determination for many uh, tribes. Suddenly tribes who had not had commercial revenues to leverage now had uh, a large uh, steady source of income they could use to pay for all kinds of public works and services that were needed on the reservation. And, with these gaming dollars, um, tribes began to sort of address years of unmet capital improvement needs on the reservation to improve uh, the lives of their members. So I guess that's sort of how I got involved with this coming from a municipal bond lawyer perspective. When I think about, um, I, I guess I have bond finance in mind when I ask this question. But um, I know that both Mitu and I have been struck by some of the, the differences that we see between bonds issued by tribal governments. And I could, I think, name a long list of potential comparators. I'm not sure exactly what the right one would be. But, you know, differences between muni bonds and between bonds issued by states and their instrumentalities and so forth. And my sense is that these structural differences often reflect differences in the investor base. And so I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about, since I know you you work on all kinds of transactions, of whether there are meaningful differences in the investor base for tribal bonds versus, again, I'm, I'm not sure what the right comparison would be, but muni bonds leap to mind. Is it a, a unique investor base in any way? I think it is a unique investor base. So I guess stepping back more broadly, um, you know, I think tribal finance fits somewhere between sort of, you know, broader concepts of sovereign finance and municipal finance. Um, by that, I mean, tribal finance has some attributes of each, but it's not exactly like, you know, what I think of as sovereign finance, that is, you know, loaning money to other countries and so forth. You know, it, under federal law, tribes are domestic sovereign nations, meaning they make their own laws and those laws apply to them and to those who enter into contracts with them. But in terms of comparing that to the municipal side, I think municipal debt is most often, excuse me, the investors who invest in municipal debt are most often driven by the tax advantage, that is, it's tax exempt debt. 
Investors who invest with tribes, if it is tax exempt, are certainly interested in the tax exempt side, but they may have other incentives such as, uh, and we can get to this probably in a moment, but most of the tribal borrowing is done in the form of loans rather than bonds. And so oftentimes I see the parties providing the financing to the tribes often coming with an existing customer uh, relationship anyway. And so it would be much more common for the tribe borrowing money to go to an existing bank with whom it has a relationship rather than going out into the broader capital markets to, uh, to do a bond issue, if that you know, is, is sort of what you're getting at, Mark. So, uh, Townsend, if, if we could uh, get a little deeper into this, uh, it would be great. So, as I understand it, there are a number of structural features regarding the tribes, sort of structural legal features almost, that might be impacting their choice of capital raising tool. And some, I'll just list some of the ones that I am familiar with, and maybe you can tell us which of these is important and tell us what you know, what, what, what effect they have. So my impression is that among the crucial legal features are that the tribes, unlike munis, cannot do, cannot escape the costs of registering their offerings with the SEC. So they have to do these very expensive registered offerings which which means that they, they just don't do bond offerings and instead maybe use bank financing, which tends to be more expensive, but maybe you'll correct me. Then, even though we call them sovereigns, there seem to be some features that are not very sovereign-like. So unlike municipalities who are not sovereigns, in the same sense, the tribes can't really issue tax-exempt securities unless, if I remember correctly, that they're issuing them for essential government purposes, which doesn't sound very sovereign, uh, that somebody else gets to decide. Somebody else, like the IRS, gets to decide whether or not I'm issuing for essential government services, and I don't get to decide what I think is an essential government service. So that that seems somewhat restrictive, but maybe in practice, it is not restrictive. And then there are uh, at least a couple of other features that strike me. So one, it's hard to pledge collateral because the status of my property is uncertain uh, in the federal trust context. And last but not least, I don't have access to any kind of bankruptcy workout system like the municipalities do under Chapter 9. So I've listed a whole bunch of features, and I haven't even mentioned the inability of the tribes to tax their members, to have a revenue stream. But all of these seem 
at least potentially relevant in terms of telling us why tribal finance has been so constrained. And I am not even sure if you'll agree that it has been severely constrained. No, I do agree. It has been constrained. Um, Let's see, there's a lot to unpack. (laughs) Uh, Sorry, I I put in like eight questions at the same time. No, 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 that's fine. So I guess, you know, just um, very generally, I would say that there are both credit reasons and legal reasons that make it more difficult for tribes uh, seeking money for capital improvements to get that money. Um, Just starting with some of the credit reasons, you know, a few of which you mentioned. For starters, tribes are relatively new participants in the debt market. There's, There's less borrowing history that lenders and investors can look to for comparison and for standards and so forth. Tribes are often, not always, but often in more rural locations and frequently have to deal with higher levels of unemployment and other economic challenges than, you know, cities, counties, uh, so forth, that may be in more metropolitan areas. Tribes also they don't neatly fit within some of the traditional models for municipal finance. And you touched on a couple of these. For one thing, tribes don't have the traditional tax base to rely upon. And in many cases, or in most cases, the land uh, cannot be pledged. So any type of mortgage financing uh, cannot be done. You know, in the classic sense, uh, state and local governments borrowing money often will um, support the borrowing by a pledge of taxes, maybe property taxes, sales taxes, uh, or their fees that kind of operate like taxes, sewer fees, water fees, etc. Tribes uh, really don't have that same history. Uh, it's it's not that they can't tax their members. They they, they do have a taxing power. It's just that they choose not to. And so you don't have this history of a tax base to rely on. As you noted, there's, there's usually different sources of collateral uh, instead of land or tax revenues or something like that. They have to pledge revenues, something like you know, gaming revenues or a hotel or, uh, you know, natural resources or things like that, that are revenue sources from commercial operations that they're engaged with. Um, You know, another credit difference is that they're not subject to the same disclosure laws, the public disclosure laws. So there's less transparency uh, of financial and other information that may not be publicly available. And so investors are, you know, perhaps wary of loaning um, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to, you know, someone that they don't have that much financial information on. And usually tribal debt is unrated. That is no independent uh, third party, Moody's, S&P, Fitch, et cetera, has provided an expert analysis of the tribe's creditworthiness. Now, I've worked on plenty of deals that are rated, tribal deals that are rated, but by and large, most are not. There. There's some legal reasons as well. And again, you you mentioned a few. Um, One is the different treatment under federal tax laws. 
So there are two types of municipal bonds, governmental and so-called private activity bonds. Governmental kind of is what it sounds like. It's for building government projects. Private activity bonds are where there is some involvement of or payment by a non-governmental private party. And tribes cannot issue private activity bonds. Tribes can only do uh, governmental bonds and really a subset of governmental bonds for so-called essential governmental functions. And that means uh, things that are customarily done by state and local governments with general taxing powers, uh, schools, roads, uh, basic governmental infrastructure, that type of stuff. Um, it does not include private activity bonds. Now, in 2009, as part of the, the recession, uh, ARA is what it was called, the recession uh, response legislation, tribes were given additional authority to issue so-called tribal economic development bonds, where they would not be uh, subject to the essential governmental function standard. And that allowed tribes to borrow on a tax exempt basis for economic development projects other than gaming. They, they cannot borrow on a tax exempt basis for gaming. But that's a, I mean, the, 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 the sort of the tax treatment of tribal debt versus municipal debt is a good contrast showing that it's a much smaller market for tribal debt. The, the other one that you, again, you mentioned that I think is, is just as important as the tax disparity is the treatment under federal securities laws. So if, if I'm a municipal government and I want to um, sort of cast a wide net and try to get financing on the most competitive terms, I would probably do a you know a bond issue or a note issue or some other type of securities issue. And as you point out, the securities laws generally say that if you're going to issue securities, they have to be, you have to go through this long, complicated, and expensive process of registration with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Now, there are some exceptions to that, which I'll mention in a second. But the benefit for municipalities is that there's a provision under Section 3A2 of the 33 Act, which exempts securities issued by states and their political subdivisions from registration. So they just get a free pass and they can go straight to the capital markets. Unfortunately, tribes are not included under Section 3A2. So if tribes want to issue bonds or other securities, they have to do it in a private placement. And that is a non-public offering that is made to accredited investors. And it's usually done with um, resale rights under Rule 144A to qualified institutional buyers. And that's a lot of jargon, but it's a fancy way of saying high net worth institutions, individuals, et cetera, are the only ones who can play in that space. So if you're a tribe and you want to sell $100 million of bonds, you don't have access to the same broad market that a municipality would have. So Townsend, can I 
Can I um, yeah, please. ask at this point something that I think connects to I mean, one of the themes that's emerging here is that there really is quite a wide range of differences uh, that might shape tribal borrowing. And we haven't even really talked much about access or lack of access to the bankruptcy system. J- just comparing this to the sovereign debt space where so much attention has been paid for decades now to thinking about how to design contracts to facilitate restructuring in the absence of bankruptcy. I'm wondering if similar kinds of thought have been given to what at least a bond workout looks like in the context of tribal bonds. Have there been innovations there? Do the contracts contain detailed restructuring provisions? What um, sort of can you give us a sense of what a, a bond workout looks like under the terms of a tribal bond? Sure, I've you know got a fair amount of experience working on some of these restructurings, and I would distinguish between a governmental restructuring where the debt relates to, let's say it's a tribal admin building or, uh, you know, a school or something like that, that does not produce revenues and that there is no direct revenue stream pledged to it. In that case, uh, keep in mind that chances are very strong that the, the project that has been financed is on land that cannot be, you know, seized, uh, repossessed um, to help satisfy the debt. If it's tribal trust land, it's sort of beyond the reach of creditors. Can, now, can a revenue? Sorry, just just for my curiosity, can a revenue stream like a, a tribal casino, for instance? I know that in principle, one could, you know, in the muni context, there's at least in theory writ of mandamus or. Uh, uh, other remedies that might uh, maybe allow one to actually get at a pledged revenue stream. What is the similar mechanism in the tribal context? So, the, so that's a good question. So, in the in the gaming context, that's where it gets a lot more you know, tricky. And the reason it's tricky is because federal law says that only the tribe can have a proprietary interest in its gaming operation. And to the extent any third party is going to exercise any control, be it through management or otherwise, over that operation, it needs to be pursuant to a federally approved management contract. Most tribal casinos are not subject to a management contract. Now, certainly some are. Some tribes go out and hire a uh, third party, often, you know, Las Vegas uh, gaming operators to come in and operate their uh, tribal casino that used to be more common than it is now. Most of the tribal casino uh, borrowings I've worked on are simply owned and operated by the tribe. So if the debt becomes distressed and if the creditors want to exert leverage, they have limited options because number one, it's it's usually trust land. They can't seize the land. Number two, you've got the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act provisions 
which say you can't step in and manage this and you can't uh, exert influence that would constitute management, such as directing you know, hours of operation or the types of games offered or anything like that. So what we usually have to do is uh, enter into negotiations with some group of investors that sort of act as, um, you know, the, the bondholders committee to work out a restructuring plan that usually means perhaps pushing out the debt uh, by a few more years, restructuring some of the covenants that are creating problems. In some cases uh, where I've, that I've worked on, the tribe simply borrowed more money than the casino can support under even a best case scenario. Um, that that happened uh, in a number of contexts, say in you know 2006, 2007, when the market was red hot, and then after the recession, things really fell off. And um, a lot of these borrowings had to be restructured and bondholders ended up in some cases giving up some of the principal to which they uh, were entitled. So Townsend, if we may turn our conversation to something uh, specific, but an implication of what we've been talking about, I think, one of the big questions that Mark and I started out with from our very first podcast on tribal finance was the cost of capital. And we had had uh, Dave Jordan from the Wisconsin Pension Fund uh, talk to us. And one thing that Dave said that got us interested was that he really liked buying uh, certain tribal gaming bonds. And there weren't very many of them, but he liked buying them because they provided a much higher rate of return for the same risk characteristics that, say, other casinos uh, like Caesars might have had. Now, uh, from Dave's perspective, this was a wonderful arbitrage. Uh, from our perspective, this sounded terrible because it sounded like what he was telling us was that the tribes have to pay a higher amount to borrow. Now, subsequently, we've come across a fascinating paper by a set of authors, uh, accounting scholars, I think, Sarah McCoy, Serena Loftus, and uh, Zhang. Uh, I don't know the third author's uh, first name, but they seem to find empirically results consistent with uh, Dave's conjecture across a range of uh, tribal bonds. Now, they don't control, uh, best I understand their results, they don't control for a specific legal terms such as governing law, type of workout mechanisms, the kinds of things that Mark and I would normally control for, but their results are 
they have very big results. Uh, if, if memory serves us, uh, something like a 300 basis point difference between the uh, borrowing costs of tribes and equivalent uh, municipalities. And uh, they say that they, they can't find an explanation uh, for that other than tribes just pay more in order to borrow. Now, if this is the case, this is a terrible thing because it means that the tribes cannot effectively tap the market in order to finance economic growth. And my impression, for example, uh, with the Lumbee tribe in North Carolina that I, I think you worked on their financing, uh, we've seen firsthand that if tribes are able to borrow and invest in things like casinos, uh, it can make a huge difference to the education, the healthcare, the general well-being of tribes. And all of that is to say, uh, I'm wondering if you can, uh, you know, now that we're at the end of the podcast, uh, get uh, give us your impression on this, this impression we have that cost of capital for the tribes is unreasonably high and there are maybe structural features in the market like for example the securities regulations that that could be modified to to give them a fighting shot in the capital market so once again i have babbled on for too long i know you were a commentator on uh, that paper at uh, at uh, once at one setting so uh, you're familiar with those results so i i'd love to hear your sense of what's affecting the cost of capital sure no you're you're correct i i uh i have worked with sarah mccoy uh, at least as a commentator i i give her and her co-authors all the credit for that paper but i i have been involved in some presentations with with sarah uh on that um I guess back to Mark's original question, why would your prior guest say, gee, I love tribal uh, bonds or tribal notes, other types of tribal debt? Um, probably because uh, as an investor, he knows the tribe is selling to a smaller group of potential investors. He has less competition. So he doesn't have to price it as aggressively as he would, uh, you know, a, a publicly registered gaming company that's uh, offering debt, or certainly not a municipality. So, um, and he, he also knows that, uh, you know, I, I found that these investors generally know each other, they talk amongst each other, they know if they need to trade this, who's a likely partner they could trade to, etc. So, um they realize that it's um they're sort of in the driver's seat in terms of the 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 differences that that you've mentioned and the higher cost of capital and transaction costs etc I, I would agree that you know that has certainly been my observation over the years uh, certainly with respect to municipalities and also with respect to similarly situated gaming companies, tribes generally pay more. And really for, you know, 
in many ways, not that much difference in risk. At the end of the day, with a gaming credit, it's all about sort of cash flow. And does the gaming operation uh, produce enough cash flow to, to repay the debt? And so I, I, I can see the discrepancy uh, that exists. In terms of how to address the discrepancy, I'd say with respect to the tax disparity, the best move would require Congress to um, sort of take what it did with the Tribal Economic Development Bond Program and make it permanent. That was an initial program that authorized up to $2 billion nationwide of tax-exempt debt by tribes for economic development purposes. I think that Congress could modify the the tax laws to remove the essential governmental function standard and simply allow tribes to issue tax exempt debt in exactly the same way and subject to the same laws that state and local governments do. In fact, there's an interesting report it goes back almost 15 years, I think it's 2011, where the US Treasury recommended exactly that. Uh, they they note the disparity and and sort of made the case that it's long overdue for tribes to have tax parity. So Townsend, like I okay, so I I don't mean I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I I had looked at a reference to that report too. If the IRS itself is saying, look, this is this is crazy. Why why do we have this? And my impression from talking to people at the SEC is that either that they're not even aware of tribes. Uh, or that they don't think there's any reason why they should subject tribal governments to heightened registration requirements uh, as compared to municipalities where every Tom, Dick and Harry seems to be issuing utterly crappy muni bonds uh, without any sort of registration requirement. It, like the, the, if these are the things that are impacting cost of capital and if they if they are producing a 300 basis point difference which uh, for a US government sub sovereign is basically your cost of cost of borrowing it, this seems like a, a very pressing issue uh, that nobody cares about yeah I agree. So I would distinguish between the IRS and the SEC. I think the IRS is very aware of the tax disparity. And I think, as you point out, uh, at least Treasury, uh, of which IRS is a part, has said, we should really fix this. Congress, But it, requ it requires Congress to do it. Similarly, it requires Congress to fix the Securities Act. Now, I, I would agree with you that the folks on the SEC side are probably less aware of this issue because the instances in which they are you know, asked to step in and enforce securities laws you know, against a, a tribal issue are, are, are quite rare. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen it. So they are, are, are less familiar with it. What I would say is that you could fix this by amending Section 3A2 to include not only states and their political subdivisions, but also federally recognized Indian tribes. That would be a fairly simple fix. As if you do that, I think it will raise questions sort of as Congress considers that fix, such as, well, if we allow tribes to issue securities on an unregistered basis, 
would we also say that they have to waive sovereign immunity to permit enforcement of uh, the contractual obligations or even securities law liability? That usually, if you have the ability to issue tax exempt, excuse me, unregistered securities, you're subject to anti fraud and other rules that uh, the securities laws hold issuers to. The other question that might come up is well, if you are issuing securities on an unregistered basis, do you have to make your um, financial and other information more transparent, you know, public in the same way that? It's public for a city, a county, a state, et cetera. So I think these are all interesting policy discussions. What I would like to set to, to see happen is at least give tribes the option. You know, if 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 Congress wants to level the playing field and give tribes greater access, come up with the standards that apply to state and local governments and say, Tribes, if tribes do what their uh, state and local government's counterparts do, there's no reason they should have to pay more or be more restricted in terms of access. If tribes choose not to do that and choose to, you know, borrow from a, a bank, et cetera, that's fine too, but at least give them the choice. Townsend, you had, you had mentioned maybe that um, expanding uh, sort of access to capital markets in this way might come with maybe insistence that tribes waive sovereign immunity. Do, do they not do that already? And, and if not, why not? I would have thought that would be, again, maybe I, my perspective here is just colored from looking at uh, sovereign bonds, but I would have thought that that would be a pretty standard part of bond documentation as it is. I know that at least in commercial contracts, parties would contract with tribal governments often, usually via arbitration, but often secure a waiver. Is, is that not part of the, the typical bond documentation now? So Mark, it, it is part of the typical bond documentation, but it's certainly not legally required. But I will say that in you know doing this for as long as I have, I don't know, what is it now, close to 30 years, I've never seen two waivers of sovereign immunity uh, from different tribes that are exactly alike. That's something that every tribe has its own special take upon. And uh, so it, if, if the legislation were to simply say there must be a valid uh, and enforceable waiver of sovereign immunity and consent to jurisdiction made, again, that leaves it up to the tribe to define what that is. That's fine. But, you know, absent that, there, there's no legal requirement to waive sovereign immunity. And at least in prior instances, you know, when Congress amended uh, 25 U.S.C. Section 81 many years ago, which was a, a contract that required BI, excuse me, a statute that required BIA to approve many types of tribal deals, and it became really burdensome. Congress amended that statute, but they required that if a tribe is going to take advantage of that, there needs to be a waiver of sovereign immunity. Um, so there, Congress is aware of the issue, and so they might say, you need to waive sovereign immunity if you're going to borrow in the public markets. In fact, I feel pretty confident they, they would say that. 
So Townsend, we, we are getting to the end of our time. Sadly, I have so many more questions to ask you. Like, for example, I read a reference in uh, the Loftus et al. paper uh, to the fact that the IRS seems to like to audit tribes, which seems ridiculous. What the, what? What, why would they do that? And that that impacts whether or not they're they're doing financing because the IRS is busy chasing after them. The the oh, that that was so irritating uh, yeah. to read. But um, I want to. You are very humble, but my impression is that you've really you you have you have helped a lot of tribes transform their economic conditions. And one of the deals that, if I'm correct in remembering you worked on, has to do with the Lumbee tribe in uh, North Carolina. And as we close, I just like your um, sort of anecdotal sense of whether it can truly transform the conditions of a tribe to have financing. And because there are some people who think that, you know, uh, it might be a bad thing. The, the tribes would take the money and then they would waste it and uh, there would be corruption. And, uh, and all of those things Mark and I hear often with respect to governments, especially emerging market governments, with uh, some, some academics and policymakers saying, no, we shouldn't give them access to capital because they will just waste it. And that certainly happens in some cases. And I imagine there are critics of the push towards, well, actually, the push towards allowing greater access to capital seems to just come from the three of us. But uh, it, assuming it, there is a broader interest in allowing the tribes to access more capital, have you seen instances where it has truly transformed the tribe? Oh, yeah. And, and I should I, I should correct one point there. Me too. I, I have not worked with the Lumbee tribe. You you might be thinking of Eastern Cherokee. That's another North Carolina tribe. Yes, yes. I'm sorry. I got it. No, no, no. That's, that that's fine. I, I have worked with, with Eastern Cherokee and they are a great client. You know, that particular pro uh, project was for a uh, large hospital that uh, Eastern Cherokee um, financed a few years ago. And it transformed not only sort of the particularly trauma services and um, healthcare in a remote part of North Carolina for the tribe, but also for the surrounding community uh, of which they are a, you know, uh, a very vibrant member. I will say that people can disagree and, you know, for all kinds of reasons about uh, gaming, but gaming really has transformed tribes' abilities many of the tribes I work with, their ability to go out and get capital to build things like, you know, hospitals, housing, schools, all these sorts of things that oftentimes we take for granted because we've got a school district that's going to build it for us or, a, you know, health facilities authority locally that's going to build it for it. The tribes don't have that. Um, traditionally, they've had to rely on federal support. But federal support has, you know, declined uh, over the years. Now, we got a big bump in federal support during COVID. But, you know, prior to that, federal support had really been declining. And so tribes had to rely more and more on, you know, their own forms of economic self-determination to 
borrow for these uh, projects that we take for granted. Well, Townsend, we've taken up a bunch of your time, but I can't tell you how happy we were with that you agreed to come and talk to us. Me too, and I have both been interested in, but starting in, uh, from a position of total ignorance about um, tribal borrowing and have been, I think, increasingly embarrassed by that as we've realized what an interesting and important market it is. So thank you so much for coming on and uh, and helping to correct some of the gaps in in our knowledge. We've, uh, we've really enjoyed it. No, it's been my pleasure. I, I appreciate you having me and look forward to future conversations. Mm-hmm.